0: Hello everybody and welcome to episode 52 of 211's Baseball Talk. My name is Dylan Baker and today I'm lucky enough to be joined by Harry Muir who had an illustrious baseball career and we will talk about the Boston Red Sox punishment that was laid down by the MLB today. We'll talk about the recent coronavirus news and then we'll dive into Harry's baseball journey. How are you today?
1: I'm great Dylan. Thanks
0: for having me. uh, It's a pleasure to have you on. Illustrious might be a little little exaggeration. (laughs) We're excited to talk all about your career though. I mean... Doing research on you, there's a, there's a, you've experienced a lot of tournaments internationally, and you've, yeah. uh, you've pitched in a lot of different places. So we're excited to talk all about that. But to begin, we finally have something new to talk about at the beginning of a podcast, as the MLB and Commissioner Rob Manfred have laid down the punishment for the Boston Red Sox sign-stealing scheme. For those who were unaware, their scheme did not involve relaying signs in real time to players on the field. It did, however, entail the study of opponent's signs in an attempt to intercept them based on, off of memory, And if I understand that, that is, if I understand that correctly, because of this, the Boston Red Sox have been stripped of their second round pick in this year's amateur draft. Their replay operator, JT Watkins has been banned for the 2020 playoffs whenever those happen. And if he rejoins the club in 2021, he is prohibited from assuming that role again, as well. Alex Cora has been suspended through the 2020 playoffs. The same punishment as AJ Hinch and Jeff Lunau, but that is only for his conduct with the Astros seeing it was as it was just the replay operator who was behind this Red Sox sign-stealing scheme. Harry, did the MLB get this punishment right, in your opinion?
1: Um, it was funny. I did an interview, uh, I want to say, I guess last week, and we talked about the Astros. And I said, you know, the best thing that happened to the Astros right now was this pandemic because I think, um, <laughs> you know, it's taken the highlight away from them. It's, there, there was a lot of attention. They were getting a lot of attention in uh, in spring training as I'm sure you noticed. And, uh, you know, especially from players, right. And I think this pandemic has really, uh, you know, distracted everybody from that. Um, I, and I mentioned in the, uh, in the interview I did the other night was that I said, you know, my opinion is that they were the first to get caught and I have no doubt that other people are doing this. And then this Boston thing came out and, uh, so yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me because, you know, everybody's, you know, it's so competitive. It's so, you know, like, uh, from when, when I played in the nineties to today, there's it's night and day. Like, you know, we didn't have, we had the pre-scouts, you know, they would scout the games prior and then they would come back and they give you the reports and you read the reports and stuff like that. But now, you know, with technology and, and especially being a pitcher, like it's so difficult to, to find an edge because everybody is is watching everything you do so finely, you know, if you raise your elbow a little bit on on average on a curveball, you know, the average I'm but the computer's catching it. Right. So it's like, so everything like that, it's so difficult and everybody's looking for an edge and we have all this technology at the fingertips that it's just, I think it was inevitable. It's going to happen. Yeah. I I don't think the, the um, I don't think major league baseball has been strict enough. My opinion. I think, you know, if you want to stop cheating, you got to lay the hammer down and they didn't, I don't, I don't feel they did that to the players that were involved in the Astros enough um, to deter uh, and but I think you know everybody's doing it at the same time. So just that the Boston just came out now, but they were all doing it at the same time. So the Astros just got caught first, I think. And I, but I, I I do believe that you know if Major League Baseball really wanted to put a stop to this, they should have really thrown the hammer down.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. I believe that the players should have been punished. I know that the MLBPA was protecting them, and yeah. one of the big things for them was not allowing the players to get punished in any of this, even though a lot of them were behind it, such as Carlos Beltran, who then got fired from his role as the manager of the Mets and, yeah. and all sorts of things. That led right into my next question. Your answer, did. Uh, as a pitcher, how frustrating would that be? And I know you, pitch, you mentioned it. You pitched at a different time where – you didn't have all this technology watching yeah. you constantly, but how frustrating do you think that is as a pitcher to know all of your, to, to have the other team know all of your pitches that are coming?
1: Um, I got a, kind of a cool story back in uh, 1990 when I was with the national team, we uh, we were in Cuba and we were playing, we we had we had uh, played the U.S. and then uh, we had lost in the medal rounds. I pitched against them, the medal rounds. And then the uh, U.S. played Cuba for the gold medal and, me and a couple buddies walked out to center field and got stopped by security guards. And this was a huge stadium. This was the stadium in Havana where they used to play major league spring training games. They'd come over and they play some games. So it sets, I think it's the max was 50,000 people. So it was a big stadium. And so center field was empty. And we wanted to go to get a different look and uh, we were stopped by security. And we were wondering why, like there were some guys out in center field, um, but the security guards wouldn 't let us walk out in the center field and get a good look in a in a picture and um, so we started asking questions and then we started watching and there was a guy with a um with binoculars there was a guy with a yellow shirt, and if you watched it, you could see the guy in the yellow shirt and he would do like hands behind his head, arms across his chest, and then arms like straight out across the seats. And he was kind of doing these three signs all the time. And we had finally, and they had this number one draft pick, and I won't remember his name because it's been 30 years ago, but he, (laughs) you know, he was getting lit up. Like he was nine, he was thrown 93, 94, you know, an American number one draft pick, just getting like lit up. And he didn't even last three innings. And, uh, and so we had talked to our manager at the time. And, uh, we mentioned like, you know, something's going on in center field. So they, they started watching and they, they discovered that they were stealing signs and they were relaying them wow. from center field. So the batter could see this guy in the yellow shirt doing stuff. Right. So you can, so this kid was like getting shell shocked. Like he had whiplash, like no other. Right. And, and he like, you know, he he'd never been hit like that hard, probably in his whole life. And he had lasted two and two and two thirds inning or something and got pulled. So I can imagine what he felt like, right. Like that, they knew exactly what they, these were 18 year olds quote unquote hitting line drive shots, like off the wall off this kid. Right. And we had enough questions at the time that, you know, are these kids actually 18? Cause they look like 22 year olds playing us, right? Like they were huge, they were huge guys. Like one kid hit a straightaway shot, like 450 feet, you know, 18 year old doing, I, I'm like, we're like, there's no, there's no way they're doing this. But so it was determined that they had been cheating. And uh, once the American uh, coach, made a made a deal of it they actually left center field but by that time it was already up like six nothing right so yeah i could see this kid like i could i felt for this kid because you know he had never been hit like this and he shouldn't have been hit like that right it should have been you know a a, a, a good game for him to throw especially against cuba like it was probably he was probably excited to, to see what he was like against these guys and he just got shelled um so it's it's really it's an unfair advantage um for sure um and I think, you know, if you look at some of the stats with the Astros had, you can see that it was an unfair advantage. But at the same time, you know, if we go back to saying, like if I said that everybody's doing it, you know, the averages are down. Um, so I think with the pitchers throwing so hard, you know, like sliders are, are crazy at like 94 now. Like, you know, we never would have seen a 94-mile slider back in the 90s. Um, so I think everybody's – it's just the advantage that they need to to maybe be successful, and it's unfortunately it's cheating. You know, like uh, Lance Armstrong, you know, they all—they all, those guys all did the steroid thing. And there's always, they're, they're always looking for an edge, right? And it's just, it's its difficult to, uh, to, to criticize because I know how difficult it is. Like I, I was there, it's right? so hard to get, you know, I had, I had, I was in the steroid era, right? And I was not on steroids. I was 167 pounds back then, you know, like I had no chance. There was no, it was obvious that I was never on steroids, right? <laughs>
0: We apologize for the technical difficulties there. We're, we're still with Harry Muir here. He was just telling a story about how in the 1990 World Junior Championships in Cuba, uh, there was the, the Cuban team was stealing signs from the American pitcher who was getting lit up and how it offered such an unfair advantage. And I personally believe that the punishment, and you do too, that the punishment laid down by the MLB wasn't strict enough on both the Red Sox and the Astros if they want to fully eradicate this sign stealing from the league because obviously everyone's going to be looking for an advantage and I don't think that they did a a good enough job to eliminate the sign-stealing part of the game. Moving on, as we've done in the last few episodes of the podcast, we'll get into the coronavirus news. There have been a lot of new cases in recent weeks amongst professional athletes, spanning all over the NHL, NBA, and even the NFL. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver said the league's revenue dropped to zero not long ago. The President of the United States wants to reopen the country and have pro sports back as soon as possible. This has leagues trying desperately to find neutral sites to play games, and this includes the MLB. They are trying to devise a plan that will see fanless stadiums in Arizona and Florida host games as soon as mid to late May. They're open to applying changes such as using electric strike zones that are away from the catchers, playing seven inning double headers, no use of dugouts, no mound visits to help socially distance. They would be using Chase Field and all spring stadiums, spring training stadiums in Arizona, Harlans Park, the Trop and spring training stadiums in Arizona or in Florida, pardon me. This would also come with a potential division realignment scenario in which the blue Jays would end up in a division with the Phillies, Orioles, pirates and Yankees. Is there any chance Harry, that this could realistically happen?
1: Um, I've thought a lot about this. Uh, and I say, I would say, you know, I wouldn't put anything past these guys at this point, to be honest, like, <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of money that they're missing out on. Um, and, you know, I want, I want to see baseball just as bad as anybody else. Uh, mm-hmm. I just, you know, like I don't see it happen like I honestly don't see how it's gonna work. Um personally, I, I you know, the the effort and the money going into making it all happen and then you know they, they get going and then somebody gets corona and then they shut down, right? Like it's it just like you know, Korea Korea's playing. and I think you know, if we did if North America followed the Korean example where um you know, they were shut down for weeks, right? Like the whole country. Mm-hmm. Um, like there was no other than grocery stores. I think in gas stations, nothing was happening, and and they did a great job of uh, eliminating or reducing it, much quite maybe much quicker. I think than the U.S. is going to do it, and and the U.S. is is still climbing in cases, and they're looking at reopening. And it just if they did it, if they did the Korean model, I think there'd be a possibility. Um, you know, Korea's. I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, you know, they're playing without ball without fans and uh it looks weird but you know people are watching ball on tv so you know i think if if north america did follow the example that korea did right from the beginning i think we might have a shot but i just i just you know i don't see it i you know i didn't agree with the arizona only I, i think it'd be easier if it's the florida arizona i think i could see that potentially happening because you know, to move all the teams that are in Florida all the way to Arizona, like you know, the equipment, uh, the you know, finding physiotherapy, like all that stuff, right? Everything that that they need outside of just the stadium, um, and then somebody, you know, some a couple guys get corona, and then they go, they all move out, right? Like it's, I don't, it's mm-hmm. just logistically, it doesn't make sense. But I, I you know, if anything's gonna happen, I can see maybe Florida and Arizona going, because they're gonna have, they're gonna need a spring training again, anyways, right? They're gonna need two or three weeks minimum to get everybody back into shape and get pitchers seeing batters. So it's going to have to start at their spring training facilities, no matter what. And maybe, you know, if they can get going soon enough, maybe at the all-star break, we are all back home at their own fields. I don't know, but I, I honestly don't think it's going to happen, but who am I? And you know, I don't have millions of dollars on the line, right? So. <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly, and I, I don't personally think it'll happen either, but you know, you never know, right? The MLB yeah. has come up with creative plans in the past. What have your thoughts been on Major League Baseball's response to the crisis so far?
1: Um, I think, you know, I, I didn't think they started early enough, to be honest. I think there was – it was, you know, obviously they shut down just like everybody else, um, and you can't criticize them for that. Um, but I think baseball has always been – and especially Toronto – um, when I was with Toronto, they were always ahead of the curve. And uh, and and I don't think, you know, it was – I canceled my spring training uh, trip, not spring training, but my spring break trip uh, a week before this happened. And, and, you know, guys were still going down to Florida for, for you know, baseball tournaments and stuff, and uh, and spring training was still happening. And I think they had lots of opportunity to, to get out of there earlier. Um, luckily, I don't, you know, I, I don't know if anybody – well, there was – I don't know how many – minor leaguers ended up getting it but i think they just they could have i I think if i'm going to criticize them they should have reacted earlier that's all i can say like i think they just i think they dragged their feet a little bit at the beginning and waited for the dominoes to start falling once one you know once one league then then they all said okay now we all have to do it right or we look like idiots right so um yeah i think they just should have they should have started it earlier that's all
0: yeah, and I think a lot, of the, a lot of the thinking for the leagues was we, we don't want to lose money. We've got to keep this going as long as we possibly can. And then yeah. in the NBA, they got cases. There were two yeah. Yankees minor leaguers that got cases. Right. And then they realized, you know what, we've got to stop this. So I agree with you there that the, uh, the MLB and all other pro sports really should have shut down a little bit earlier to try and slow the spread of the coronavirus in their leagues. Now, every week we try to give you, the listener, a different perspective of the game from that of one of our guests. And this week we're lucky <laughs> enough to have a first-time guest as Harry Muir joins the show. In case you're unaware, Harry won a a gold medal at the National Championships with Team Ontario. Later, he competed in the World Junior Championships in Cuba, as he was just talking to us about earlier, as a member of the Canadian National Junior Team, where he threw a no-hitter. He signed in 1991 as an undrafted free agent with the Blue Jays. In 1992, he was highlighted in the award-winning CBC documentary, Chasing the Dream. He later went on to pitch in France, winning the National Championship and the League's Best Pitcher. Thank you so much once again for joining us, Harry. We're excited to have this interview.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks Dylan.
0: So you're in Cuba in 1990. You, it had to have been a high pressure situation. It's the world Junior championship and you throw a no hitter for your country. What was that like?
1: Um, honestly, uh, I didn't know, I, uh, at, there was an error at the beginning of the game. And, um, so I really didn't, uh, I didn't really think about it until at the end of the game when I found out that it was a no hitter, I was pretty excited because it was actually <laughs> my first no hitter and, uh, so given going a little back further um, when I made the Ontario team. So I never had any baseball coaching growing up um, like lucky, not like you, you've had a lot of great coaches in your, in your time. And um, I had great coaches, but I didn't have great baseball coaches because there was no baseball coaches around at that time. Right. Like I was, I was years ahead of some of the other, like there's a lot of ex pros around here now, which get, which are giving great, great coaching. Um, but when I grew up, we didn't have that. So I was, I was a, I just had a I was a kid with a great arm and I was a really good athlete. Um and uh so when I made the Ontario team I finally got some coaching and they worked on the mechanics. Um when I made the when I was lucky enough to make the national team they taught me a changeup. So up until that point I was just I was 17 years old and I hadn't thrown a changeup. I had a curveball and a fastball. That's it. Um so then when I got to the national team they worked on a, teaching me a changeup and then also like pitching like because i i didn't know it. i just threw the ball right i like hit it if you can <laughs> you know i'm growing up around London here i really didn't have much competition um I, I threw hard um but overnight from the ontario team to the national team i gained eight miles an hour so i was throwing 84 to start and then by the time i was heading to cuba i was throwing 92 and it, that was all just wow. yeah that was all just coaching right like mechanics my changing my mechanics like actually using my body because i was a really strong kid i was thin like i said but I was strong. I was a track athlete. I, was, I played basketball. I played volleyball and I played baseball. So I was a multi-sport athlete. And, uh, but I just didn't have any coaching. So once I started working on mechanics, then all of a sudden I'm throwing like 92, 93. And everybody was like blown away. Um, so the France thing was was more of a like a test for me. This was, you know, this is the biggest competition I've seen. Other guys on the team had been on the team before. But for, for me, like, I had never been out of the province. Like, I'd never done anything up until this year. Like, I spent my year 17. Um, so, I just kind of kind of blew up all, all, all of a sudden. And here I am on the, you know, international stage. So, they were kind of testing me with France. Working with still, you know, pitch locations. Working with the catcher. Like, getting, you know, three pitches and stuff. And so, all I focused on all game was listening to the coaches. Watching my catcher and just trying to hit hit the hit the glove, make my pitches, and I just kept going, make my pitches, make my pitches. Get you know, and uh, yeah, I was one walk away from a perfect game too. <laughs> so wow. yeah, I was disappointed. Yeah, so it was exciting because i like I showed them that you know hey, because my my goal was to throw against the U.S. I wanted to throw against the U.S. I wanted to test myself. This was my you know I didn't know if I was ever going to get that opportunity again. So I'm like I want to face the U.S. And after I threw uh, the no hitter against Cuba, they were happy. They were impressed. So they, I I got to throw against the U.S. in the medal rounds. And uh, that's that's the that was the uh, the life changing moment for me. I would say is that uh, I pitched really well against them. I threw seven innings. I struck out I think eight. Um, I walked two, and I gave up uh, three hits. I think. So, and I have, gave up five runs, but. Um, four of them were unearned. So I gave a, un, 100 runs to the U.S. over seven innings. So, um, Wow, that's, uh, that's incredible. Yeah, it was. I had a great outing. Um, Sean Green was on the team. Sean Green hit third on that team. And uh, he went over that day. So that was a, that was a big deal. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> yeah. We, so we played get... together on the Jays and I, I mentioned that to him and he was like, you oh, I remember that. Yeah, you were good. And I'm like, yeah, well,
0: <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. But you didn't get drafted and I'm sure that was a little bit disappointing for you, but did it motivate you to get even better?
1: Well, so I'll tell you, so um, Canada wasn't in the draft back in the old days. <laughs> oh yeah. So, I was a Canadian. So what we were called were Canadian free agents. So if I went, if I went to college in the U S then I would go through the draft as a Canadian. Um, But if you didn't, if you weren't in a college in the U S then you were a Canadian free agent. So I could, so after I pitched with the U S and I came home, my phone rang like every night I had pretty much had a phone call. It was either a U.S. school or it was a scout because all the scouts were there. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh you know i pitched i threw a no hitter against france and i pitched you know a three hitter against the u.s over seven innings right so i was I, I i did that after two games i was one and one with a 1.18 i think era or something it was like really low um so i had a great time <laughs> right um so my phone yeah every night my, my phone was ringing off the hook it was pretty exciting. Um, Sorry, I lost my track of thought there. What was the question? <laughs> it's all good. I was just
0: asking if it motivated oh, it, right. you to get so even back, better. Yes, uh, thank you. Really, be yeah, so,
1: um, so everybody was talking about signing and, and stuff like that, but I really didn't believe that I was like, like I was good enough to sign because um, I I only had one opportunity to show my showcase myself, right? So I I really figured I was going to school. Um, so the word came out that Canada was going to become be part of the draft in 1990, March 5th, 1990. Okay. So what happened was the Jays and a bunch of other teams started making the rounds through Canada to try to sign some free agents before the draft. So I signed as a, like one of the last Canadian free agents on March 3rd, um, two days before I was eligible for the draft. So if I waited to, if I didn't sign on the third, then I would have been in the draft that spring.
0: Um, Yeah. So I'm sorry, I had no yeah, idea. I didn't no. realize that that's how it was yeah. back then. But that's that's a that's an interesting yeah. story actually, because you were one of the I last was. guys that could be signed as a Canadian free yeah, so, agent before the draft. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah,
1: so Toronto signed the most Canadians they've ever signed in one year that year. I think they signed 32 Canadians that year. Um, never wow. never done before, never done again. Uh, but they just went on a rampage across the country just to, just so they wouldn't have to, I guess, waste draft picks on us. Um, but ironically, they never they never talked to me once. Um, Kansas City, Montreal were really hot on me, especially Kansas City. So I think um, if I did go in the draft, I don't know what Toronto was thinking, but Kansas City really thought highly of me. Um, So I think they would have taken me for sure. Uh, But then again, I talked to Toronto and they're like, oh yeah, we've been watching you since you were 14. I'm like, I had no idea. Right. (laughs) Um, But they never talked to me in Cuba. They never talked to me afterwards. They called me on a Saturday. And said, "Hey, we're going to come through your area. Can we stop stop by tomorrow?" Which was the Sunday. So I'm like, "Yeah, of course you can." um And then I signed at five o'clock that Sunday night. So, yeah, it was pretty exciting. Obviously, when Toronto knocked on my door, it was pretty much like give me the pen. Where do I sign? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because you get a you get a big league contract in front of you. You don't always want to pass that up. You never know what could what can exactly. happen in the, in the time that you may not be signed to a professional team. Now, you pitched in the Gulf Coast League in 1991. Uh, where you posted a 2.23 ERA in 14 starts and three relief appearances. You quickly ascended the minor leagues, and you slowly transitioned from starter to reliever. Was that an easy transition, and which role did you prefer?
1: No, it wasn't easy. Uh, Yeah, I had a great year my first year. Um, Alex Gonzalez is my shortstop, and he's the reason I didn't win any more games, because every time the ball went to him, he made an error pretty much. <laughs> uh, I, had, I was three and five. So what it was, what'd you say? I was 14 starts, was it? So I had uh six, six, no decisions, yeah, 14, I had starts. six, no decisions. <laughs> Killed me. Right. I should have had a winning record. Um, you know, I was the most used pitcher in the league. Um, yeah, it was a great year. It was a lot of fun. Um, but then the next year, you know, was the first year I started playing baseball in February. Right. I came, I went to spring training in late February. I had never picked up a ball in February in my life. Um, Right, so you know, in Canada, I you know up here we start in May, right? So it was a huge change for me. Yeah, wasn't ready at all because I didn't know how to get ready for February baseball. Um, you know, I was still nineteen, so I really didn't know what the heck I was doing. Um, so I struggled through spring training. I struggled through what we call extended spring training. So after spring training, if you're not going to a long season team, like if your season doesn't start in April, then you stay in spring training, which is called extended spring training, and that goes till June. And then you have like a mini camp for, which is like another mini spring training for two weeks. And then you go to your short season team. So I was going to medicine Hat that year because I didn't do well in spring training. So I was going to the pioneer league and our league didn't start till the middle of June. And we went to the end of August. So I got there and they still put me in my starting role. I had three starts and I was terrible. Um, so, they pulled me and they put me in the bullpen and I was struggling with sore arm, you know, and it was my first real struggle with arm problems in my life. Um, I I don't know, you know, arm problems, meaning like my arms didn't feel great. I wouldn't say I had, I didn't have an injury, but I just never got to the point where I felt comfortable that whole year. Um, So then uh, the next spring training, so then I knew what to do. So coming (laughs) coming around the next year, um, I figured it out and uh, I showed up at spring training ready. And I wanted to win my start back. Um, but I was in the spring, I was in the training room one day and I had my shirt off, which was actually not allowed in the training room. So I'm not sure why I had my shirt off, but this trainer approached me and he said, what's wrong with your arm? And I'm like, what do you mean? What's wrong with my arm? He goes, you have the same problem Al Leiter has. And I'm like, well, what is that? And he's like, oh, blah, blah, blah. He said this term. I'm like, well, what, what does that mean? And he goes, well, you have like a, a hole in your shoulder where a muscle should be. I'm like, okay, I've never had a problem before. So they, so they did some tests and they found out that I have a nerve palsy. So you have these tunnels in your body where the nerves run through and my nerve, my hole for the nerve was too small. So only about 10% of my message was getting to one of my muscles in my shoulders. So it caused an atrophy in the muscle, which causes like a dent in the shoulder. And, but I had never, I think I was born with it. Whereas Al Leiter had his surgery in it and they killed the nerve and then he had to That's why he took so long to come back. And anyway, so this trainer that was working with Al Lighter had just noticed it. So after that point, they kind of babied me, I would say. Um, So in my mind, I want to be a starter, but in their mind, they're like, no, we're going to take care of this because it could cause an injury. We're not going to make them a starter. Right. So, but they don't communicate to that to you. Um, So in my mind, I'm like, I'm doing everything I can to get my start back and they're not going to ever give it to me because of this arm issue I had. Right. So, yeah, it became an issue for me, for sure. I wanted to be a starter. Um, you know, the kind of consensus in the minor leagues is like, you know, only starters get to the big leagues. And then when you get to the big leagues, they put you in the bullpen kind of thing, right? So it was kind of like, it seemed to me like it was like, uh, you know, this is this is the beginning of the end because if I'm not going to be a starter, then I'm not going to make it. And that was wrong of me to think that way. But, you know, being 20 years old and stupid, that's the way your mind goes sometimes, right? So, but I had a great year that year in St. Catharines. You know, I ended up uh, with the movie and uh, we won, we were close to winning the championship. And I had a great extended spring training had a great spring training. So, it was, that was a nice year. My numbers were almost the same as my first year. I think it was a 2.23 year A again. I was four and one with three saves or something. So, it was really good numbers. You've got a great memory. Yeah. Wow.
0: <laughs> I've got the stats here was in it, front of me. Was, was I bang they're, they're, they're Almost yeah. identical. It was a 230 ERA, but yeah, man, oh 2-30. man. That's it. Um, well,
1: you know, live to the past here, buddy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, you played some formidable opponents in your minor league career, and you played with some great MLB players. Who would you say was your toughest opponent and the most talented player you either faced or played with?
1: Um, you know, spring training was always fun um, because you got to see people that you, you know, you, you were kind of shoulder to shoulder with, uh, as close as we could get, anyways, with, on a daily basis with a lot of our big leaguers, right? So, uh, you know, I was in the I was in the spring training room uh, with like Dave Steve on day, you know, on multiple days. Um, I hung out with Woody Williams for weeks. Um, when he was rehabbing in spring and extended spring training and just, you know, before Woody, Will, Woody became really Woody Williams. I don't know if you're familiar with him, um, but he had a great career in St. Louis, like uh 13 year, like he won a world Series, Like he was amazing. And, uh, I got to face Jim Tome in uh, spring training. I got to face, uh, yeah, it was just neat when you when you went to spring training on other fields. They would they would have big leaguers that are rehabbing, and they jump in. They would kind of jump the line. It's like they, all of a sudden you would see Jim Tome on deck, and you're like, oh my god, there's Jim Tome, <laughs> like you know. Um, but yeah, I got to, I got to pitch against Carlos Delgado again in spring training, and that was fun. Um, there was a lot of guys, and so many. Like, um, a buddy of mine has a memory like a like an elephant, and he'd tell me every guy I ever faced at any time and. Uh, and uh, I just don't have that mind, but I had a lot of, a lot of cool guys that there was a, um, just trying to remember, there's a guy for the Yankees. who was a big center fielder. I remember facing him in uh, the New York Penn league. And he was just a monster. Like he was so big and intimidating. And uh, he ended up playing a couple years with the Yankees, but it's just, it's, it, there were so many guys that went through at that time. Like, I think I played with 22 guys that ended up having um, time in the big leagues, which was really rare like my year my wow. 19 yeah like the guys that I play with and there was this two or three year span there with 22 guys went that I had had time with and it was it, that was extremely rare um uh you know I hope I'm just trying to remember um if there was any like Shannon Stewart for instance right uh I, he was my roommate mm-hmm. um you know Carlos Delgado Sean Green obviously had a great career with LA ended up in LA and Oh God, it was. Uh, you know, could have been, should have been a Hall of Famer for the Blue Jays if they'd won a few more games. Um, you know, it's guys like that. So I was real fortunate, and it's great memories and uh, to to think back and to talk to my son about uh, and, and guys like you about uh, you know the the history of and and the number of guys that I played with and the, and the careers that they ended up having.
0: Well, that 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 is fascinating. You played with so many talented players, played against them as well. Yeah. That's that's really super interesting. Um, as we shift back now to your, your return home, when you came home, you became the pitching coach of the Intercounty Baseball League's London Majors from 2000 to 2006, including a formidable 2006 squad that fell in the IBL Finals. Um, so what was that like for you being the pitching coach for an independent league baseball team?
1: Uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I just, uh, 2000, so I'd, I'd also sp- I'd come back from France and I'd, when I was in France, um my coach then was uh, greg hamilton who's now the director of baseball canada and mm-hmm. he he kind of well what he just the way he communicated with me like i'd never had a coach like greg before in my life and i wish i had greg for a lot more years than i did um and it's too bad it was at the end of my career not the beginning of my career but um <laughs> what he knew about and how he communicated with me really inspired me to be a coach and um so when i came home and i you know started figuring out where I'm going to go from there. And, you know, my baseball was like, I started flying. I want to be a pilot when originally wanted when I came home. And so I'd done that. But after that, um, I decided, yeah, my, my friends, um, bought the team. And, uh, so it's, it was a, it was a real simple progression for me because I was ready for that age group. I was not ready to coach any eight year olds. That's for darn sure. Um, But so it was nice to get a hold of guys like that and I could talk about the more like the mental part. Like they're physical wise, you know, like you might have to tweak a little bit here and there, but they knew the me- they have they had the mechanics, right? This is two thousand, right? So these guys have had coaching, way better coaching than I did. And um mechanically they were pretty sound, but it's it was the tweaking of the mind, maybe the tweaking of the pitch a little bit. And I really enjoyed that part of it. Like dealing with twenty year olds instead of, you know, some younger kids were you know, you can, you can really delve into that part of the game, like the mental part, um, the uh, you know, setting up the hitter part, all the stuff that I'd learned later in life that I really wanted to teach people because i never had that part of it. Um, I think that's the real, that was my real love was just getting into those little fine details of the game with older kids. And I I love that part of it with the inner County league.
0: Mm -hmm. So you, you had a great amount of success coaching with the, with the majors. Um, including that trip to the IBL finals. You guys fell to Brantford, I believe. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got to that point in 06. That's going back. A,
1: um, we had a
0: <laughs> real
1: good coaching staff. Like Ron, I think Ron, Ron LeClaire was the manager, and uh, we got along really well. Um, I remember the – I can't give you any names of the guys that were on the team. Um, but it might have been, uh, I think a lot of the kids are actually uh, with the Great Lakes as coaches now. Like, um, uh, I don't know if Adam Arnold was on that team then, um, but Ambrose was there. Uh, anyway, so it was just a really great group of guys that got, like, and that's that's the key, right? Like, if you're going to win a championship, like we were, when we were in St. Catharines, we had a great group of guys. And some other team, like all my teams were good, but um, it's just the if, if a team can meld together and, and really be like one, I guess you could say, and that doesn't happen very often. Um, And that's why Brantford was so good for so long was because they kept that, you know, they kept the 14 or 15 guys together and they might add, they might have to replace one or two, but they had that core forever. And they were dominant for 10 years. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and we had a lot of coming and going like guys coming in and coming out, but we finally had this group of guys that really got, Really, really got it. Really played well together, and and really had a lot of fun. Like I remember having a lot of fun, and when you have a lot of fun, um, you play a little more relaxed. And uh, you know, you've played baseball, and baseball is a very difficult sport because it's so mental. And if you're hooked, if you're caught in the into the moment, and you're not playing a little bit relaxed, even though you're under pressure, you know, like I was, I was under pressure on that U.S. game, um, but I was loving every minute of it at the same time. You know what I mean? And and if you if if you if it's a balance, you gotta cry, you know it's almost like you're jumping across that line back and forth between pressure and fun, and uh, and we had and the guys just had it there, and we just didn't we just couldn't get over that hump. Like we, just, I think it was a game. I think it went. Did you do you have the record? What what it was later in the season in the series though. I know we didn't get swept.
0: I think it was I think yeah, it was game five I was or say six. Five or six. Too, and, uh, there, we were yeah. So
1: darn close. Um, it was heartbreaking because mm-hmm. it's been you know we we were really close and, and it's been years since they've won it. Right. So.
0: Yeah. So you, you mentioned in 2000 that you weren't quite ready to coach <laughs> uh, eight year olds and and younger kids, but in 2011, you began yeah. coaching with 11 Tecumsehs, a uh, minor baseball organization in London, Ontario. So tell us a little bit about your experiences, coaching younger players and what Man, and what coaching like. younger kids is like so hard. Like it's so hard.
1: Uh, you, know where to, you know, like from my back, from my background, like my, I had a son and, uh, you know, thank God one day he told, he told me he wanted to play baseball and, you know, it has been one of the happiest days of my life. Um, um, but at the same time, you know, I thought I knew what I was doing. Right. And, uh, I was a horrible, I, I have no, I have no doubt. I was a horrible coach for three or four years for sure. Um, <laughs> and you know, it was a huge learning curve. 22 year olds that have a lot of college, college time. Now I've got seven year olds and I had no idea how to communicate with them. Uh, what I wanted to say, how to say it. And it was, it was just basically, you know, like throw me in the, in the, the den and I had to figure it out, right. Sink or swim. And I, eventually I figured it out. Uh, but it's a, t- it's tough. It's, it's really tough. Like, you know, you want to have the kids have fun and uh, that's the priority. Um, but you also want them to learn some baseball. And I, you know, I felt I had so much to teach them but I wanted to teach them everything. And that was my mistake. You know, that's what I was trying to do. And I was trying to do too much. And when I learned that, you know, at uh, you know, two or three things here and there and just try to keep focusing on the, on the basics. And when they're ready, you know, you can see when they're ready that they, you can move on to more difficult things. But I think when I do hard and it made it not as much fun for me because I, I felt like I was kept failing. Um, so it took, yeah, it was took. It was it was difficult. It took about three or four years before I finally got my head on straight, and uh, and I, you know, it's it's been enjoyable ever since. I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm hoping we get a season in this year because my son's last year, and I really mm-hmm. wanted to uh, to have that with him again. Um, but I'll still, I'll, you know, when he's gone, I'll, I'll I'll still be coaching for the Tecumsehs. I love the organization. I've loved everybody I meet. I've met. It's been a great time.
0: Yeah, and uh, you've coached that midget team uh, or 18u team i should say for a while and uh, hopefully you continue coaching with them i i will be 18u or oh, midget yeah, right. eligible next year minor midget i believe and i don't know if i don't know if they're going to combine the team again but if i have a chance to be coached by you that yeah. should be a lot of fun i i would definitely be looking forward to that now with your time coaching young ball players has there been one element of pitching mechanics that is commonly overlooked in today's youth
1: um pitching mechanics overlooked um not so much today. Like, you know, like I said, coaches are so educated compared to what I was, when I was growing up, like, you know, between YouTube and, and, and the, uh, you know, center field or the batter's box like, where you have so much access to such good coaching. I find kids are, um, are way more advanced than, than uh, even when I started coaching, um, you're getting kids that, you know, already have the ba- like solid basics. Um, there's always you know, the little tweaks, like, you know, uh, I, I'm a big believer in, um, in balance for one, you know, if you don't start balance, you can't end balanced. I, you know, I'm, I, I was a very fluid and very controlled pitcher. I'm not a big fan of this, you know, recoiling and stuff. Um, if you know what I mean, like when they follow through and they pull their arm back, I, I mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of that. Uh, so I, I have my kind of personal preferences, um, and if you look at my kids that pitch with me they you know they i wouldn't call them robots but they they they're obviously my kids right they're obviously they're obviously been coached by me and they all look kind of the mm-hmm. same um but everybody has a different personality and you kind of that's where where you, where coaching really becomes an art is trying to let let a kid kind of do what he what he feels comfortable doing but at the same time just don't let him stray too far and and that's what i've learned as i get more mature and more coaching underneath me is that you know, you don't have to coach everybody the exact same way. It's the art of learning how to coach a kid differently and, and still get the point across and let him, you know, maybe his arm's going to be a little different because that's where his arm is. That's where it feels comfortable for him. So I try not to be too picky, um, but there's the three or four things like, you know, landing closed, keeping the hips and the arm, shoulders separated as opposed to, you know, so there's there's the few key things that you just have to make sure they're doing. And then it just becomes a you know a repetitive thing, right? Like getting them to do it over and over and over. And that's the hard thing with baseball, right? Is is especially pitching is 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 getting your mechanics to where it's so repeatable that it's just it's just same thing every time. Same thing. Every, you might be throwing a different pitch, but your mechanics never change. And that's that's where the kids, I think, struggle the most. And that's where they fail the most is not is just not being uh, as consistent as they need to be, right?
0: Yeah. And, you know, I started coaching my little brother's baseball team. He's eight years old. He plays minor rookie baseball. And that's super interesting. That's something I'm definitely going to keep in mind your, your philosophy on coaching, because, uh, because as you said, you can't overload them with too much information too fast. And you've got to, you've got to let them figure things out on their own, but also, also bring in the, the, the right knowledge and stuff like that so I'll try to keep that in mind as I continue coaching my my younger my younger brother and hopefully continue with more kids after that and I'm sure that a lot of a lot of coaches that listen to the podcast will take that information into account now final question you've spent a lot of time in the game do you have a favorite baseball memory yeah i
1: knew you were going to ask me this and i was trying to you know I can't, I, I would, it would be impossible that like, I've you know, I've been lucky enough to like, I traveled the world playing baseball. I've been to uh, three different continents. I've been to 30, I think 32 States, um, you know, all over Canada. I got to go to France. I, you know, one, two, like you said, I won two national championships. I got, you know, I've had so many highlights of my career um, and, it, you know, and it was a fairly short career. You know, a lot of my friends played for 10 years, 13 years, and I only got to play for four or five. Um, so I really wish it was longer, but, um, you know, when it's been, I, I thought about this and I said, you know, it comes down to the people I've met, like the big, the best memories I have are of all the people I've met over the last oh, gosh, too long <laughs> for 40 years of baseball. You know, I can't believe it's been, but I started, you know, I'm 47 right now. So I've been, I started when I was six. So this, I've been in baseball for 41 years, which is incredible. Um, but so many people when I was young were, were mm-hmm. advocates toward, you know, for my career, And so many people step up and try and do anything that that they can help. You know, I got free gym memberships when I was a kid um, in London because I knew a lawyer who knew a guy and he, you know, he wanted me to be successful, you know, and, and, uh, you know, when the movie came out, so many other, so many things came out of that and so many people came out of that to help. And, uh, and, you know, when people find out that, you know, even now, you know, when people that I've met or I'm meeting and they find out I play professional baseball, it's, it's an interesting conversation because you know it's they've never met somebody maybe that didn't play that never played pro ball so they they get excited and it gets me excited again so it's like everybody I meet it's always very neat it's very cool um to talk baseball it's like you're you're just starting your career I think in baseball here in the different different area than I ever been in and uh it's neat to see what you're doing and I get to talk to you early on in your career and and so it's, it's exciting for everybody to be involved. Like, you know, I I know I didn't make the major leagues, but people around me and, and friends and friends were always excited for me. And um, it was a big deal. And, uh, and I always appreciate that. You know, I got sick. You may not be aware of this, but I got sick um, 15 years ago and uh, like really sick. I was in a coma and London just stepped up for my family. And it was because of baseball. You know, this baseball when you're when you're part of baseball you're part of this family and even the Tecumsees right you know we're a big family and if something happens to somebody in the Tecumsees we would all step up and and because we're family and uh you know because I was with the London Majors at the time my family was was the whole city and the the whole city just you know even Brantford and and the whole league like you know they stopped the league because I went to the went into the hospital and I was going to die um you know they postponed the start of the league because of that they people did fundraisers so it's like you know just the love and from the game and the love because you play the game and you meet these people because of the game and, and they become friends forever or they become a queen, you know, it's a, it's a unique um, experience for sure. And I'll never forget the people I've met and I appreciate everything that everybody's ever done for me. And uh, that's one of the reasons I'm coaching. I'm always coaches because I feel like I need to give back um, for everything that everybody's given me.
0: That that is that is that is awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Harry. It was a pleasure to get to to chat with you about your, your <laughs> long action packed baseball career. We would love to have you on again sometime. Uh, anytime, this is, this is Dylan, really I, it. I am I'm you know, I'm super excited about your
1: career. I think uh, I don't know if people who listen to you uh, really realize you.
0: it, but uh,
1: you're like in the minor leagues right now, and uh, I have no doubt that you're going to be in the big leagues someday. And I'll be <laughs> I'll be bumming you for some tickets. So I'm excited to see where you're going with this.
0: Thank you so much, Harry. We really appreciate it. Thank you all for listening to episode 52 of 211's Baseball Talk. We'll be back next week with another great episode for you.